Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Lunar Crush Live. We are excited today. We have Oliver from Panther Protocol. We're going back to back privacy. <laughs> you realize <laughs> that? We're, like, it, there's something going on. It's like, you know, people are people are building down that space. It'll be fun. I feel like I'm I'm extremely prepared for this now after talking to, to Secret last time, which is cool. Um, you know, just a disclaimer, everyone, as a reminder, you know, we do not take payment for our live streams. We bring on fun, cool, exciting people that have dedicated their lives and careers to crypto. Um, get in there and ask some questions. If you've got any questions for Oliver, we'll take them in the chat. Um, preferably if you have them on Twitter, a little, little bit easier for us to get to fast. And uh, hit that subscribe button uh, for future live streams. Looks like we've got, actually, we've got a really interesting one um, tomorrow with Wave Financial. Um, we're going to go through... And they're going to break down the Terra situation and how they kind of protected their firm from some downside there, um, which will be pretty interesting to hear about that. So I'm excited for that one. Um, and Eternity on June 1st. So with that, let's bring Mr. Oliver up. Oliver, how are you, my man? I'm great. How are you doing? We're doing well. We're doing well. Well, welcome nice. to the show. We appreciate you being here. We always like to start with where are you in the world and what's it like there? I'm in Barbados right now and it's paradise. Mm. Mm. So yeah, sunny <laughs> Barbados. I travel a lot. So I'll be in London uh, by tomorrow morning. Wow. Yeah. You, you seem relaxed. It must be on the beach, Barbados. Are you getting in the water a lot? What are you doing out there? I woke up this morning, exercised on the beach. Uh, that's like a good way to start the day. So, and I'm overlooking a view of the ocean and working. So. It's definitely more relaxing in, in an island like Barbados. That's awesome, man. The hustle and bustle of the city. Are you, are you from Barbados? Yeah, I was born in England, but raised in Barbados. And then I've been nice. educated in Canada and England and Barbados. What is, the, uh, what is the crypto scene in Barbados like? Since we started it in 2013, it's blossomed quite nicely. Uh, there are a number of companies here. Polymath is based, for example, probably the best known based out of Barbados. Um, we have a sandbox regime, which is sort of co-regulated to enable fintech innovation. It's not uh, that well publicized, but that's a good environment to test and experiment. And uh, we're working to have appropriate regulation put in place for sort of blockchain uh, financial services and blockchain development. Amazing. Has the, has the government re been receptive to, you know, some of the things that you guys are talking about there or what's their, what's their take been on it? Um, in all honesty, the take's been too slow. You know, Barbados was the first Caribbean country to have a blockchain company, which was bit.com back in 2013. I was a co-founder of that business and fast forward almost 10 years and they still haven't actually activated with the momentum that they should have. Right. So it's good to see the Caribbean advance and Barbados is now pulling ahead. Regulators have always been receptive, just not proactive. So we're sort of looking at the environment and saying, look, I mean, I do a lot of work around the regulatory environments for virtual asset service providers and DeFi, particularly with Panther and privacy. 
And this is a very, very important conversation that is happening between the industry and regulators in different parts of the world. And unfortunately, from what I've seen so far, most regulators are getting it dead wrong. So, you know, this now you come back to small nations where you have the opportunity to present them with the opportunity to enable and foster innovation at a time when, I don't know, idiots are at the helm in other jurisdictions. So that's, that's how I look at it. This is an interesting topic. It's, I, I think we're seeing dozens and dozens of posts about this exact topic like every day on our, on our feeds. I mean, what you said they're getting it dead wrong. What are some of the things you think they're getting dead wrong? Um, trying to regulate protocols. It's, it's, it's like, there's this expectation that you're going to go to a regulator and say, Hey, I have something like, let's just go back in time. Hypothetically. Hey, there's this thing I've invented. It's called the World Wide web. It's called the internet. And I'd like to get a license for it. And they go, okay, well, what's it used for? Like, oh, everything under the sun or close enough. It's like, okay, so how are you going to regulate uh, money laundering activity? How are you going to regulate child pornography? How are you going to regulate uh, criminal cartels? How are you going to regulate online bullying, etc. on the internet? And you say, well, I can't. It's like, okay, well, we can't have an internet then. That conversation didn't happen. It didn't happen that way because you don't regulate the internet. Who's using the internet? Who's the cyber bully? Who's the criminal cartel? Who's the operator? That's what you regulate. So now we're in this world of protocols and they're going, oh, you wrote some software. Uh, you're in control. Uh, you're, in, you're responsible for what this technology is used for. No, I expressed myself using language under something called freedom of speech. And I released that open source or or, or maybe, I long, maybe I took it a step further and I deployed it, but I don't operate it. It's operated by those who want to use the technology, be it Panther Protocol, Ethereum, Secrets Network, whatever it is. And, uh, and so what the regulators are trying to do is make the new world the old world. And that's just A, lazy and B, dumb. So the new world is not the old world. If it was, we would have been in a position where you say like, okay, well, we have that thing called Bitcoin. Can we have permission to run it? No, Bitcoin never asked for permission. That's why we're here. If Bitcoin asked for permission, we wouldn't be here. So we live in a different paradigm. And, you know, within that paradigm, uh, you know, we need to have appropriate regulation. And appropriate regulation means... Look at who's operating the protocol, the on-ramps, the touch points, who's hosting the front-end server. How do you connect to the APIs? Where are these APIs hosted? These are the questions that matter. Who's offering the service? These are the questions that matter, and that's where regulation takes place. So, you know, that's where we are. You're here. It's interesting. It's interesting to you. Great, great answers, by the way. Um, you, you bring up freedom of speech and it's interesting because this may be the these protocols may be the very thing to help balance that out and to to make freedom yeah. of speech an actual thing versus just over regulating and basically shutting people up you know it's like uh yeah. 
we're we're in a world where that isn't it's it's freedom of speech is a myth right now i mean yeah. uh, you know some some site doesn't like you goodbye you know it, yeah i mean uh, look elon's putting 45 billion dollars into seeking to acquire twitter i mean whether he renegotiates now in light of the market that's a different conversation but obviously this is a guy who thinks super macro and he sees that the play is important enough that it needs to happen and it's a fundamental constitutional right in places like the united states of america which are heralded as the home of freedom like the last bastion of the free world if you will if the u.s abandons its constitution then all hope is lost that's how i see it because there are such staunch defenders of it well freedom of speech is part of that and software is a language and you know our expression of things like mathematics are what they are for that reason so big brother's already looking over your shoulder um so you talk talked a little bit about regulation there and it's like I, like i think that's why also people have such a hard time like valuing like the space and valuing what's going on. You know, it's like when you see the last couple of weeks, it's a, an opportunity for the naysayers of the world to kind of like try to redunk again on crypto and on web yeah. and on what's being built. And it's like, you know, I like, I, I actually just saw Coinbase's commercial for the first time about like crypto is dead and like just going back and looking at the tweets over the last like 10 years of people saying that. And it's like, obviously it's not going anywhere. Yeah. Um, but it, why Crypto's do you think that? Again. Why do you think people have such a hard time understanding the disruption that's happening around them, right? It's not, I think maybe like my take on it is people are used to looking at value by, you know, the increase of something, right? So, oh, this stock's going to go up or this company's going to grow or this thing's going to happen where like inherently solving this double spend problem and peer to peer basically just means like an efficiency. And so it's actually just, creating efficiency and that's where the value is being made and so people aren't used to assessing value in in like efficiency they're they're used to seeing it worth growth but what's your take on maybe why so many people are still to this day having a hard time understanding the disruption after like the example that you gave about the internet like you know that that's one of the great examples of it's just a disruption of everything and it's like how do you it's like if you could have invested in the internet just in general what would that be worth right? Like since we don't have anything to tie it to and it's so brand new, what's your take on, on that in general? Um, you know, like I think the byproduct of uh, permissionless blockchain is efficiency, but there's efficiency because you fundamentally change the, not only the the social contract, but you, you change the explicit economic contract between actors. And you remove, you know, it's like a triple ledger accounting system. And so when you introduce that, well, let's go to a double ledger entry accounting system. When Medici Bank introduced that, they created huge efficiencies in their ability to track resources and trade and offer financing solutions and became one of the most powerful banking families uh, in Europe and the world as a result of that efficiency. But that was a paradigm shift. And so when blockchains introduce triple ledger entry accounting, you basically abstract the trust away from central actors and say, we're gonna disintermediate that central actor. And these central actors always 
insert themselves into the power structure and take excess profits. So the efficiency is the ability to, by decentralizing that structure, uh, re sort of uh, shift the value back to the network users. And I think it's difficult for people to understand that because the concept of our entire economic paradigm is based upon central actors. And so if you don't really sit down and think about, hey, how does how does fiat currency work? How does a central bank work? What's that relationship? What's the dynamic of printing of money? Uh, or what's the dynamic of an identity register at a national level or your tax authority or Facebook or Google or you know Netflix and these other surveillance uh, companies who, by the way, are, it's not a coincidence that these are the most powerful organizations in the world because they essentially, in a centralized fashion, take custody of your data and then monetize it and don't pass any of the profit to the users. So we're living in a world where the average user and even some very sophisticated individuals think about this just as the status quo, where it's really not the status quo, it's a paradigm shift. And just to tie the point back into where the regulators, so the regulators are trying to say, oh, well, nothing's changed. It's all the same. Right. So what you're really saying is the force of systematic control and power that exists at the government level is going to stand in direct opposition to the force of open source, mathematics driven, uncensorable networks. Well, which one's going to win? I don't know. Well, uh, what won, the horse and carriage or the steam engine? What won, electricity or, or fire? What won, the internet or telegraph? So in the inevitable answer is anything in our economy that creates efficiency and improves people's lives becomes uh, a force that is the impetus for change. And so with things like Bitcoin, you know, that's what started this and ethereum has continued it now there's third and fourth generation blockchains and where we are at this moment in time is really assessing who the winners and losers are going to be in this technology paradigm shift and the naysayers they're sort of like the broken clock was right twice a day you know they've just been waiting to be right again um you know bitcoin i saw an article bitcoin's a valueless network Say, like, wow, that's incredible. You guys are exceptionally stupid. You exceptionally, well, maybe I'm using that word too much, um, belligerent in your view. Because Bitcoin's transmitted more value than MoneyGram and Western Union combined. And the network is has no intrinsic value. Okay, cool. For those type of people, I don't really think there's a need. Like, use Google or don't. You know, inform yourself or don't. And so from a technology standpoint and a bear market, it's always a good time. This is maybe my third bear market now, maybe fourth <laughs> if you consider like March 2013, April onwards of bear market. Um, it's always a great time to build and it's a great time to reflect and take lessons learned and look at what's going right and what's going wrong because inevitably things like mechanism design have improved, but there's still some major issues when you consider sustainability and longevity. And, and I think this regulatory push is playing right into the hands of self-sovereign 
privacy. It's literally going to fracture the industry into PriFi and RegFi, and uh, which is the same in any financial services regime. Like any educated regulator knows that you have to craft appropriate regulation because if you squeeze too hard, actors find a way to work entirely out of the system, and that's not in the interest of anyone. What you need to do is essentially allow the destabilization of the entrenched powers, the established cartels, um, whether it's banking or otherwise, to be um, to have their profit margins eroded away by making more competitive services that people actually want to use that make their lives better. And, and for the average user, that's supposed to look exact, almost identical to the way it looks today because the services, the apps, these things are are pretty smooth interfaces. That's not the problem. The problem is what you pay for the service. So the, the revolution is supposed to, when it's all said and done, it's just supposed to be faster, cheaper, more secure uh, in many regards. And, and that's exactly what I was, I was saying, right? Like, that, I think that's why people are having a hard time understanding the value because they're like, okay, I'm just using my phone the exact same way, except everything's under the hood and I don't know the difference. Right. But the, yeah. the difference is you have autonomy over your data, you have autonomy over your, your value. Right. And it's just a better system. But for most people looking at that and seeing the exact same app, they're like, what'd you guys do? You know, I think that's yeah. where people are having a little bit of a hard time. Um, and you, like you talked a little bit about like, you know, going from telegram to telephone and like, you know, horse and buggy to the steam engine. And then you said, you know, we're, we're at the point in time where we're kind of picking winners and losers. Um, you know, it's like, I, I wanted you to talk a little bit about where you think we actually are on that, that timeline of like full disruption to the beginning of disruption and by winners and losers, are you saying right now we're kind of picking layer ones in a sense? And then I, you know, maybe you could talk a little bit about why like privacy is so important and like what, how kind of like Panther fits into that. Yeah. So when I say we're picking winners and losers, I think from a macro perspective, we're at that tipping point that the cypherpunk, cypherpunks really like cypherpunk manifesto, I encourage everyone to read it. It's just as important as the Bitcoin white paper. It's all about privacy and rights to data ownership and how data behaves on, on the internet. Uh, but that movement itself, like, and, and Bitcoin in the early days when it was really just Bitcoin and when I entered the industry, it was Bitcoin, Litecoin, and a handful of forks. I had small changes. And when you were like assessing what is the potential terminal value of Bitcoin, it was in the context of runaway quantitative easing, hyperinflation, economic destabilization, and the inability of uh, modern uh, central banking, you know, money management systems to regulate an efficient economy and that culminates in hyper bitcoinization now that's a bitcoin centric worldview i more subscribe to multiple protocols being part of uh the ecosystem with specialization in different areas to serve different needs and uh and so when i say we're at the point of picking winners and losers 
the train is off the tracks. It's run. It's a runaway train. It's coming off the tracks. Fed can hike the rate rates as much as they like to. Regulators can try and stamp crypto out of existence because they realize this is an existential threat. Neither of those tactics are going to work, and ultimately, what's efficient in the market is going to is going to prevail. So, that's like a macro perspective. Then, to speak about layer ones and and layer twos, yeah, I do think that there's going to be major consolidation and their competing paradigms around which part of an L1 one should optimize for, should it be security or throughput, uh, decentralization, et cetera. So sort of the classic uh, trilemma problem of building an L1. And again, these are, these are paradigms, philosophies that have to be proven in production. And how it pans out would be interesting. Like, is the future going to be Ethereum and a bunch of L2s, ZK-based L2s or, optimi or optimistic roll-up-based L2s, and you just plug data back into Ethereum and pay a huge uh, gas fee for that? Or is it going to be Solana or some other protocol that has, again, optimized in a different way and made trade-offs for the ability to process more transactions? The jury's out. And because the jury's out, we're building a multi-chain protocol. I think a multi-chain ecosystem makes sense. There will be long-term protocols, L1s and L2s that maintain a, a position in the ecosystem. And there will be many whose value gets crushed and there's really no network effect they can sustain. So that's, that's how, so if you're, investing into crypto this is the time to really you know look at your source data and assess your thesis and your fundamentals and it's probably a good time to begin accumulating uh because you know prices are way down and they may come down further still so dollar cost averaging uh, within the whole crypto universe when we started panther we, we looked at what we looked at the macro and thought, what is a big unserved need? What is sort of a ubiquitous good that Web3 really requires? It was before Web3 was a popular term, like mid 2020. And I've been a, an investor into privacy coins like Monero. I was mining Dash in 2014 on GPUs when it was called nice. Darkcoin. Mm -hmm. So, and I got into crypto, I got into Bitcoin because it was an alternative payment system that is uncensorable and in the Caribbean, as beautiful as it is, we still don't have the ability to pay an Uber or, and therefore even have Uber in Caribbean because the payment systems are so archaic and it's fragmented and it's all owned by foreign banks and the correspondent banks don't want to let the local indigenous banks run payment networks and i built uh the first mobile money blockchain based payment network in the caribbean and it was unable to scale so the company migrated to the us and we ultimately culminated in creating a, a retail central bank digital currency which is the first of its kind and that was 
in order than that was, hey, put legal tender status on to colored coins on Bitcoin, digital bearer instrument, perfect. It's legal tender, has all the properties of Bitcoin, um, but it's legal tender. Now CBDCs have, you know, trans translated into it needs to be censorable, it needs to be centralized, it needs to be in people's wallets, we need to track everything, which is not what blockchain technology is about. That's not the value prop. So I'm not bullish on CBDCs in their current format. But looking at that paradigm shift, I do see a massive need in the global economy for things like private digital cash. And so Panther was kind of this genesis idea between my co-founder and I of how can we, okay, we don't think Ethereum's going anywhere. We don't think Solana's going anywhere. These are public chains. These public chains and their networks require privacy. How can we build composable privacy on these chains and how can we service uh, the instruments that are being transferred on these networks with, by <clears throat> without seeking to recreate the entire network and whilst also enabling compliance because we're not a team we're not a team of anarchists we believe that privacy and the right to privacy is equivalent to the right to freedom of speech and i haven't heard this said but if i choose to say nothing have i not communicated something isn't that my right to freedom of speech to encrypt my communication and communicate with who I want to, isn't that my right um, to communicate how I want to? Yeah. And so these things are very intimately connected and privacy is a service that you add to a good. Take any two identical goods and imbue one of them with privacy and that adds value to it. You know, privacy represents data security. It represents data ownership uh, applied in the market. It protects alpha. And so if you can bring that service to Web3 and enable one with the ability to actually say, hey, I own my data, but I want to share it. I want to share it with Coinbase because Coinbase has a partnership with MasterCard and I really want to be able to utilize my MasterCard. And however, I want to protect my transaction history across Web3. Panther has a sub protocol called the Reveals, which facilitates zero knowledge attestations where you can actually confidentially share data with service providers without everyone else knowing what you're doing. And, uh, and so that's, and at the same time, a user can say, I'm self-sovereign and I don't want to utilize any of these regulated financial services and I don't want to share my transaction history or data with anyone and therefore I'm going to maintain that right and that's the end of the discussion. That's how, that's how it goes. So Yeah, I mean, you're when you, you think about that privacy, I mean, that's why a lot of people are forcing they're getting forced into a centralized exchange that has, you know, if they want to spend, spend it on a credit card or a debit card or whatever, it's kind of like, hey, get sent to that one singular address that that exchange holds. That's actually the public address on the blockchain and everything else is kind of covered up where, you know, it's like you see this problem a lot in NFTs where as soon as 
someone gets doxxed on their their public address it's just like this inundation of like almost phishing attempts also on on their wallet and it's when you think about like the nefarious actors of like where you want to protect yourself it's like sure maybe the, like a government's on there and different governments are probably different on the list you know as far as like what you're yeah. worried about but what you're actually most worried about is just other like individuals or groups of people that are out there like trying to fish for your financial information or your like you know your private information and your name your social security number and whatnot so it's like it's almost like can't we just start with the protection there right like why do why does it all like it's not always just about like oh i'm worried the government's going to come and take over and like don't take my guns type thing it's like sure that that could be in your mind as well and like you should keep that in your mind but man, there's this laundry list of other things that are going on. And especially in crypto right now, I mean, we see, like we talked about Twitter spam, like, you know, there's a, there's been a big campaign of like verified accounts that, you know, whether they were purchased or taken or whatnot, fishing for NFTs, it's like, you know, I, I can understand where, where things are moving now with privacy. Um, and, and maybe you could talk a little bit about like, like you were saying, we don't want to have to rebuild everything again. Right. It's like, oh, we just rebuilt everything on, on layer one. And now it's like, okay, we're going to rebuild everything on privacy layer one now. But like, how are you guys kind of thinking about that kind of porting over of the current infrastructure a little bit while also maintaining kind of the privacy layer? Yeah. So we chose, we, we debated it and discussed it and deliberately chose not to build a ZK VM. And the analogy I use is it's like, imagine you've got a desert and, you know, that's the world before smart contract protocols. And then you build Las Vegas right there and everyone's using it. And then someone says, hey, I've got this fantastic idea. We're going to build the exact same Las Vegas infrastructure, but it's private. So all you have to do is come and build in this fresh, fresh patch of desert. And like then in practical terms, the network effects are really you're asking a lot to overcome maybe eight or nine different network effects around the established liquidity, the user base, the developer tools, the Lindy effect, um, uh, and so forth around existing L1s that have TBL. So in practical terms, Panther operates with shielded pools on each protocol and the, the shielded pools, sort of the transaction activity that happens within them is private and we're building cross chain private bridges to connect these shielded pools the shielded pools themselves also facilitate DeFi adapters which allow you to more or less exit the privacy of the shielded pool to a clean address interact with the protocol like uniswap and its liquidity and then return the output back to the shielded pool and the net result is you get to use uniswap privately and you have a set of records that are yours that you can share by ultimately via APIs and SDKs that we'll put together for the community so that you can integrate your financial services uh, into existing DeFi. So, it, and that was the idea of not breaking composability within the DeFi you know, multi-chain universe. Right. And, and so that's how we approach that. Uh, more more specifically, I guess, how does this work? Like if I was a regular user and I wanted to use Panther Protocol, what would I do? Let's say you're using ETH, you take your ETH, you connect to your wallet. We're working on an integration for Wallet Connect as well. So I mean, working on a couple of things. One is 
<clears throat> we're in talks with MetaMask about integrating a SNAP so that Panther would be available within MetaMask so it could be embedded in settings and you just enable privacy, you pay a premium and you've got this extra functionality. Panther also has a web wallet, um, typical to sort of any other uh, web wallet. And you can connect uh, to the wallet, you deposit ETH, it's automatically wrapped and custodied on chain. You mint a ZETH, which is a synthetic that's one-to-one -one collateralized. So there's no there's no volatility risk of holding different assets. Uh, there's no custodial risk because you manage your own keys and it's the protocol itself. And so you're really looking at one risk, which uh, there's there's no impermanent loss because shielded pools are essentially swapping one identical asset for another identical asset to create the anonymity set and privacy effect. So your risk is basically the cybersecurity smart contract security risk, and uh, which every protocol has. So, and then Panther is subsidizing, essentially re offering rewards for users that add to that anonymity set. Once you have, so that's, but the, the short answer is you deposit the asset, you're in the shielded pool, and then you transfer it to other members within the shielded pool. Those transactions are private. They happen within the pool. Uh, we're building the ability to do basic atomic swaps within the pool as well. So you can split, merge, swap assets within a shielded pool. And, uh, you know, it's it's essentially, a, it feels like another payment network. You're not sending it to an ERC-20, uh, uh, a standard Ethereum address. You're sending it to uh, a pseudonym that you alone know. And that's really interesting too, because uh, combined with the zero knowledge reveal scheme, which I, I mean, I've been talking about shielded pools and transactional privacy, but it's a prover verifier protocol for um, essentially validating anything from your compliance data to your credit score, to a private vote, to digital identity, to authentication as a valid user for access to Web3 service. And so the reveal scheme can actually be used in a broad sense between what we call trust providers, which are the parties that provide the zero knowledge attestation, like your ID, you're over 18, your ID is valid, you pass source of funds. And then the service provider, which is the party that accepts your zero knowledge attestation in light of accepting the underlying data. So it's a, that's a great example. Like, so if, if you're proving that you're over 18 to access something, but you don't really need to know it's me, you just need to know that I'm over 18. Um, how does that happen? Is there like a, is there like a separate verification? Is there like a separate KYC on the users that kind of happens separately? How, how does that all come together? So from a, a practical implementation perspective, you need compliance uh, service providers, software service providers like CypherTrace, like Elliptic, et cetera, to integrate the Panther protocol into their service offering. And then what you would do is, uh, so they would accept a zero knowledge attestation so let's say you've got two financial institutions, A and B, and you've got today A and B both have their own compliance departments. And if you want to 
use both services, you need to submit your, let's say it's, you know, Binance and FTX. You need to submit your ID and your source of funds and they custody that data and store it and you have to do that twice. Which means that a couple of things. One, if one of them is hacked, your information is compromised. So the attack surface is, gets larger with the more and more verifications and service providers you use. With things like zero knowledge compliance, you could have one institution or the other or a third party. Each of them would be called a trust provider. Do the KYC, onboard you, validate you, and then they'd give you a zero knowledge attestation, a proof that you could then take that and submit it to, let's say, institution A, let's say Binance did your uh, compliance and Binance and FTX enter an agreement to say, we will accept the compliance that you do as valid for our purposes if a user can show us a proof that they've done the compliance and passed it and passed source of funds. And so that, uh, that is facilitated using zero knowledge proofs. Now, there's really interesting ways you can store that data. Panther doesn't directly address data storage, but the container that houses that compliance information can be centralized. It can be like IPFS, decentralized and fragmented. And so it's up to the parties to determine how to store the data. And I mean, the net in that alone as an application of zero knowledge proofs and an application of Panther is talking about compressing global compliance and cybersecurity costs from this extraordinarily expensive and inefficient system down to something which is far more secure because less actors have the data and where you can use zero knowledge proofs to validate information. And if you need to, you know, say there's an investigation, the user can agree at the time they enter into the service that they will reveal some or all of their transaction graph if certain conditions are met, like if a red flag is raised on the compliance system. So if you sort of combine the Panther stack, private bridges, shielded pools, zero, uh, ZK reveals, you can do interesting things like build multi-chain institutional dark pools or private voting platforms, et cetera. Well, it, like talking about identity, I, I feel like we've been talking, I mean, we've been doing this live stream now for a couple of years and I feel like we've been talking about identity for like so long and it's still not solved in this space. Yeah. And it's like, it, it's such a vital piece to it. When you think about, you know, if we have, you know, like one human, one account, you know, sure, you could still have like large groups of actors that are trying or attempting to do something or creating fake accounts. Um, but it would kind of ward off a lot of, you know, the nefarious activity as far as like bots and spam. Right. And it's like, the identity, it's always coming back to this idea behind, you know, I can give you whatever information that I need to give you when I need to give it to you versus you just like housing it at all times. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, when you think about like, God, you know, when you think about identity from like the wallet standpoint, right? Like you're saying, like, you, you know, you kind of said, Hey, you know, we're going to have this integrated into a MetaMask, but also we have a wallet. Right. And then it's like, you know, I don't know about anyone else, but the, the number of wallets now, that everyone has that's individual is kind of getting a little little outrageous almost like discord channels with like the quantity of what's going on i mean how do like at, at what point do does like the space start to just 
kind of build on top of each other versus like building in silos. It's like, you know, how do you make that product decision versus saying like, Hey, like I know MetaMask is probably a leader in wallets and we want to integrate there. And there's a lot of user base there versus saying like, you know, Hey, go download a new wallet. It's like, how do you think about making product decisions like that? Especially when you're trying to make these adjustments. Yeah. I mean, to be clear, I consider when I use the word wallet, it's something of a loose term because if you think of taking assets and depositing them into a smart contract protocol to some degree that vault is a wallet i might have a limited or a different set of use cases um, as compared to a transactional wallet between parties that seeking to do the normal bill payments and debit cards the crypto.com type experience so the panther wallet is not seeking to be uh like ios or android application with debit cards integrated into it we're really building the web interface that you will connect your wallet to and in that regard when you're transacting within that environment within the shielded pool sure it operates like a wallet but really I don't see that as being how the ecosystem chooses to use Panther. They're going to take their existing wallets and integrate the service into their offering. And I think from the perspective of like, it's, we don't have to come together and say, let's decide to coordinate and you're building a wallet. So I'm going to build the yield application and someone else is going to build that piece. Let everyone compete, compete let attrition happen, let efficiency to play uh, play out. That's one of the beauties and of the innovation here is like fork the code and do better if you can do better. Read the white paper and technical documents and publish something better and make a contribution. Most of them are not going to succeed, but it it's like unprecedented uh, financial competition. So how can CBDCs, how can traditional finance even web two finance how can that compete with this ability for anyone to uh fork a code base and innovate on it and build on top of other people's primitives so right that's i think that that's like a self-solving problem and bear markets are really good for weeding out those those teams and those products that just aren't making the cut for whatever reason. You know, on, on that note, you know, you, you've talked about like interoperability and, you know, different layer ones, I guess, how do you look at, at what survives and what doesn't, you know, we're at a really interesting point. You could look at a lot of these layer ones and they're, some of them are down 90 plus percent over the past six months. Um, you know, it's, it's not a crypto thing alone. I mean, you look at the stock market, it's, it's technically a whole lot worse. Um, when you look at this, like how, how are you looking at interoperability and, and what chains you're supporting? Are there a certain set of criteria that you're evaluating them by? Um, from the position of Panther, the criteria is what is the user base? What's the TVL and what's the willingness of the supporting foundation or the DAO to subsidize our build? onto that protocol. So that's a pure cost benefit analysis and or expected benefit analysis. And 
uh, over the longer term, it's going to be a function of we'll prioritize on those, like who's got a larger need, a larger user base, and what's our cost to deploy. And so the cost factor is we're building on Polygon now. So for us, it's, is this EVM compatible or EVM equivalent? And if it is, then that's a much lower hanging fruit for us to consider. And so it's interesting that even though EVM is not the most efficient language and, and means of writing and deploying protocols, it has its own network effect. So I think there's an interest in play where what you find is you also get strong developer communities when you build your own like custom language and it becomes your developers become sticky, but you may not have as a, access to as large a pool. So there's like, that's a factor. I think developer active developers is one of the most important metrics. Um, and the quality of the teams building on these protocols, these are really important. And then from my perspective, when I'm looking at L1s and L2s, I'm really looking at the consensus mechanism because that is at the heart of it, you know, as well as, so is there a differentiator here or is this just very similar to something that came before with an optimization, but no existing pre-existing network effect. And personally, I think like I'm looking at Ethereum and I'm, my opinion personally is Ethereum's, ETH2 is going to come out and there's going to be a set of miners and community members that want ETH1 to continue to exist. And so there's, I think there's going to be a, a fork of ETH, um, another one. So we'll see what happens. Classic, classic, classic. Yeah, super classic. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think uh, another thing, you know, that I've observed in looking at this last cycle has been that it's really not sufficient anymore just to be better technology. You also have to have a compelling go-to-market strategy, even as an L1. So I look at Solana and I'm like, look, Solana said, hey, ETH is going to get bottlenecked on transactions. We're going to go for transaction throughput. And with Alameda and FTX and that ecosystem, we're really going to take an active role in financing and funding and bootstrapping the DeFi primitives and uh it's almost like a business if you look at terra luna in spite of its collapse terra's thesis was fundamentally there's a volatility issue with these native tokens and we want to build an ecosystem that's powered by an algorithmic stable coin and that's going to mitigate the the issues of native tokens and volatility so uh, that's a whole, you know, I'm sure that's been spoken about enough that that, you know, ran away, got way too far ahead of itself and burned too fast, too, too bright, too fast. And I think it, they got onto a set of tracks they couldn't get off of. But at the core, it was still a strategy of how we bootstrap the adoption of an L1. So it's really important, I think, at this time to consider how these protocols are competing and whether the the strategies are are feasible because a lot of the consensus issues it's just sort of like optimizations and trade-offs at this point there hasn't been a consensus breakthrough that has gained any traction since proof of stake 
And if you talk to proof of work, sort of Bitcoin maximalists, and there's some geniuses in that field, they'll tell you proof of stake's a perpetual motion machine that's going to fail anyway. So I think that the jury's out on everything. The jury's out on everything. And uh, depends on how abstract you get in what works and what doesn't. It comes back to my earlier example about Bitcoin. Is Bitcoin a failure because maybe block rewards when those subsidies are so low, the network isn't secure enough because people don't pay transaction fees? Aside from the fact I don't think that's likely, the jury's still out on that. But does that mean, so if that happens in another five years, does that mean a technology which changed the world over 15 years is a failure? I mean, was I mean, uh, when you look at VHS a failure? Yeah, it's like when you look at like the original DAO, right? Like the DAO back in like 2016, right? Like when that failed, you know, people are like, oh, this is, you know, this is not going to work. This is like, you know, this is too new. And then here we are. A couple of years later and now it's like everything's going to be a dow right like it, it's it's just a again a, it's that's the disruption of the organization now and governance versus like double spend problem type stuff and it's like i, I feel like an algorithmic stablecoin is going to come back around and it's going to come back around much stronger and we're going to see we're going to see that kind of reinvigorate later on um because it's, I mean, that was like, it was the darling of the, like everyone, you know, in the space. I mean, everyone was rooting that, rooting them on. Like if you were someone that wasn't a Bitcoin maximalist and wasn't a traditional finance person, like you were rooting them on, you know, you yeah. wanted them to win. But it, you know, the thing with algorithmic stable coins is if you think that financial infrastructure will migrate into on-chain environments, whether they're permissioned or public blockchain based and that um, things like treasury bonds and we've already done CBDCs. I mean, the, maybe not effectively yet, but an algorithmic stable coin, if you were to take an effective CBDC and use it as collateral for uh, permissionless blockchain based stable coin, you would be able to say that's an algorithmic stable coin, right? Because the algorithmic part is not necessarily like to me, I don't think it's not a great innovation to say, I'm going to build this stable instrument backed by this volatile instrument. And the risk of the two is the same thing, which is like early, the earliest stable coins, the basis cash and so forth, algorithmic ones, uh, or to say, oh, well, that's too risky. So I'm going to take a diversified portfolio of again, public blockchain, tokens and diversify the risk and make that more stable. Is that an algorithmic stable coin because it's a diversified basket? Well, I can extend that logic and say, well, why not put fixed income products and traditional finance onto blockchains and then use them as collateral? Because the real innovation with the algorithmic stable coin is transparent reserves. That's what that value prop really is. I think there's a second one, which is if you can use permissionless instruments only, uncensorable instruments, then you can have an uncensorable stable coin. That's, you know, that's an important consideration. And it hasn't. Oh, I think you tapped mute, Oliver. Oh, sorry. Okay. Uh, I was saying that we haven't yet made an algorithmic stable coin that doesn't rely on an asset box centralized. Stable and, coin. and it it's even with the assets that it had 
backed. I know we're going down like the Terra Luna, you know, rabbit hole a little bit, but even with that, it the centralized, you know, failure point was market making and centralized exchanges, right? Like when you're when you have an asset listed across 350 different pairs, some of which are not very liquid, it doesn't take very much capital to knock a couple of those things off a peg. And it doesn't mean that the peg, they kept saying the peg on the blockchain is safe. It's like, yeah, well, that doesn't matter when it's traded across 350 different exchanges. And so it's like, you know, which kind of, I know we're getting out of time here. I want to lead you to some of my last questions here of like, even it sounds like you've been in the space a really long time um, and you've seen a lot. What, what do you want to see different coming out of the bear market? Like what is your snap your fingers? Like this has now changed in the space and we're all kind of building forward. Like, what do you want to see kind of coming out of this? Yeah, I feel like first of all, I never saw the NFT pop culture Cambrian explosion come in. And I think that's one of the most exciting things that's happened in, in crypto since I've been in this space. And there's going to be more of that. So that's great. I, I feel that the big challenges in front of us now are to to figure out how like to compartmentalize and separate that regfi has its place where a digital identity exists on chain but it's you know built in a way where you have your privacy and can share your identity because without that you can't you can't access under collateralized credit which is right. absolutely essential for if you want to solve financial inclusion, you've got to start by getting people out of debt. You can't offer them loans which are fully collateralized because they have no money. So you need to build credit history and on-chain protocols are a perfect place to build that type of history. And if you can have a digital identity standard attached to that, that unlocks so much value in that spectrum. And it also unlocks all of the financial services that we would like to see in consumers hands right to improve people's lives so i think on one side that's a really important piece of uh innovation i'd like to see and on the other side not that again i think regardless of the position regulators take on crypto all they're going to do is create short-term pain but the outcome is inevitable so the request then the wish would be that we have appropriate regulation that allows builders to build and focuses on the access points to these protocols and says, you know, if you are utilizing this technology, you have obligations. But if you're building the technology and decentralizing it, this is a different structure. So I don't, I do not want to see DAOs broadly considered to be corporations with pseudo directors and pseudo shareholders because i don't think that a dao functions anyway similarly to a company this it's a completely different paradigm in most cases so smart regulation that allows the innovation to continue is absolutely critical and i would like to see more privacy slash pri-fi solutions in the space as well because there's just a huge amount of information that we're all sharing we're spending more and more time in the metaverse and in web3 
we're spending more and more time on our phones, our lives and identities are more and more tied into these. The last thing any of us needs is to have a, a world in which every single transaction that you do is immutably placed on a distributed ledger forever. That's, that is not even a step backwards, that's unprecedented serfdom. It, it so, is kind of a weird rub, isn't it? Like we, we, in this space, we're talking about privacy. We're talking about like owning your own data and everything else. And then like every single one of these blockchains is hundred percent public forever. And it's like, yeah. if you've done a transaction on the Bitcoin blockchain and that's tied back to you, like, I mean, that, that could, that will be there for the rest of your life. No questions asked, yeah. like at least. And, at and as computing gets more efficient, as computing gets more efficient, it's easier and easier to process that volume of information and come up with intelligent insights about you. And the thing about that is it's surveillance because the poor man on the street can't do it, but the multi-billion dollar corporation seeking alpha or seeking to inf influence your behavior as an individual can, will and does. So there's a whole aspect of democracy that ties into this as well. Um, any other things I'm wishing for? Uh, I mean, it would be great as well if there was just less scam artists and bad actors in this industry. I, I certainly, mm -hmm. it's been going on and maybe it won't stop going on, but there's a bunch of people in this industry that have been in it, either new entrants or old entrants for the right reasons, really trying to make a positive impact on the world. And then there are others who just see a cowboy town and they're like, I'm going to ride this user base or whoever it is and rub them, whatever the tactic is. So certainly, you know, there's two sides to the coin and it would be great if we can get that balance right. It, and that's really, we're trying to facilitate that type of technological conversation with Panther to say there's a role for compliance. Here's all the tools, but there's a role for privacy. And the thing about privacy is if you don't start with it, you'll never have it. So you've got to build on a solid foundation. And the solid foundation is I'm a sovereign individual. I should own and control my data. And if I want to participate in the economy, I can enter into negotiations and contracts with everyone, including my government around that contract. And what the give and take is. How, how do we, I mean, I feel like the, the little flush out that's happened here, you know, the, the standard like person that's kind of come in, in the last retail wave, you know, they got burned and they, they got burned on crypto, but they also got burned on Shopify or Peloton or, you know, they've got burned mm. all over the place. Right. <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's really bad. And so it, it's like, naturally that person is probably a little bit less trigger happy until the next, like, you know, bull run happens and you know they lose they they forget everything that they learned over the last one um but i like you know when you first started talking about like the nefarious actor the the person that's the fraud or the scam i kind of thought you were talking gonna go down the path of like the amount of like bots and and kind of spam that's out there which is like a, an issue um but then you, you know you kind of turned it and said uh, some of the people in this space i mean what do we do in this space where you know, naturally democratizing the opportunity for like the everyday person to kind of participate in like the creation of value at the early stages. It's like, this is the opportunity that's kind of created in, in crypto, right? It's like 
kind of like, you know, I forget the, I don't know if it was like Gary Tan who put 300 grand into Coinbase and he made like, you know, at least at the top made like $2.4 billion, right? It's like, man, if, if there were a bunch of people across the world that put $100 in, what would have been the upside for them on something like that, right? And so it's like, naturally, when you, when people can kind of get into something earlier, the inherent risk is going up, right? It's kind of like part of the reason we started Lunar Crush, it's yeah. great transparency and everything. But at some point, it's like, it almost just needs to be a messaging thing of like, hey, when someone goes and tries to start something new, like most venture investors, there's like, hey, I know the 97% chance this goes to zero. There's a 2% chance maybe I get my money back, 0.5% that like I'll 10x and like 0. 0.00001 that it's a, you know, the next unicorn. But it's like, that's kind of like the job, right? That's kind of like just mm -hmm. the nature of humans interaction and founder conflict and all those things. So how does how does that get across to the everyday consumer because it's like you're always gonna have people coming in and it's like what there's a fine line between like the theranos it's like you know and like vaporware and like oh it's literally not even possible to build that thing and like every scientist said so mm -hmm. and then also just like hey we were a DeFi platform we were good people we tried really really hard and yeah our treasury was in ust and now it's at zero and so we go defunct it's mm -hmm. like how do you like how do how does the market start to balance that stuff as we get into this next phase yeah Sorry, super long. The message, nah, it's awesome though. But the message is there's no such thing as a free lunch and there never was and there never will be. So markets separate winners from losers and figure out how to price products as they should be. And there are these dislocations between reality and expectation that manifest as bubbles, which is, which are byproducts of human behavior, our exuberance and our greed and then our fear and capitulation and um and that's not going to change because that's human behavior so if you know if you don't learn from the market that's what being in the market and investing and tracking these investments all of the users who would have been burned in this cycle and maybe they haven't been in one prior i'm sure i'm sure a lot of lessons were learned i'm sure an education was had and i'm sure that that education was exponential as the markets were and that those lessons learned can be applied as an investor or entrepreneur in in these open markets for the next cycle and if you learn then you generate a real edge and those real edges build value over the long term if you don't then you're destined to keep losing your money and i think um, education in that regard is the most important factor to do your fundamental research and analysis and assessment. And as every VC does and say, look, what's the quality of the team? Cause we back the jockeys as much as we back the horses and what's the tech and what's the product market fit and what's the addressable market. And is there any on-chain data and where can I find more about what's going on? Uh, and the beautiful thing with this is the, the, the true beauty of investing into token economies is you got to invest in Bitcoin when it was at nothing. If you found it and saw it and there are people who put a hundred dollars into Bitcoin and they're massively wealthy as a result. Coinbase, if you weren't in the small circle of VCs and individuals who got to invest, then you had to buy it in the public markets. And for some reason, 
our regulators think that they're protecting individuals by precluding them from participating in a huge asymmetry of risk. Right. To say, look, you might lose your shirt, but like a good day in a VC's office is you have 20 investments and you know, 15 of them are outright failures and four of them do a small multiple or break even and one of them does 100x and you're way up. You know, your portfolio is 5x up at that point. And then you move to the next fund. So it's like, it is about risk management. You have to be able to underwrite, assess and invest intelligently. And the ability for everyone to even have the opportunity to lose your shirt because you made bad investments and maybe you made some good ones along the way. That's way better than being locked out of the party entirely and having to watch from the sidelines and literally buy the top when it goes public. You know, the, 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 if you're going to IPO, what you do is you wait until your S-curve starts to taper. You don't, you don't IPO like at the peak of the curve because there's still more money to be made for as a private equity investor. What you want to do is you want to wait till it starts to taper and then do a huge marketing campaign and then let retail buy that. And then you get your exit liquidity. It's literally worse than token models where I'm not saying the token models have been efficient. They need, they need to be optimized and improved like su supply management and all of these mechanisms. Some get them right. Most have gotten them wrong. We're learning as an industry, but the point is you can see it. You know, the rules of the game, you can check the smart contracts You check the code. You can read the white paper and, uh, and you can assess the risk for yourself. And if you can't, then don't invest. Unless you like gambling, then you might have more fun in Vegas. <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's great, man. And it's, it kind of ties back to, to regulation, right? And not having even some set of rules that's out there um, for like, you know, young entrepreneurs that want to start something. And so they end up having to, you know, if they want to create something new in this space, they end up having to go to all these other corners of the world, or they have to figure something out that that doesn't necessarily make sense. And, um, you know, inherently it creates more risk for the investor. Right. And it's like, if, if they could figure that out, they could probably bring that back in. And then the, the rules that have been in place for a long time where they're locking people out don't make sense either. It's like, kind of comes back to the, uh, the beginning of what we were talking about, but Hey man, it, it was a pleasure meeting you. i like super impressed with like the product and like, you know, going down, looking at that roadmap, you got a, you got a lot, you got a lot of stuff that you guys are working on. So, you know, definitely wish you the best of luck with everything and, um, you know, Thank stay you. in touch and we'll have you back on here at some point, but dude, where can everyone find you? Where can they find Panther protocol? We are, well, thank you very much for having me. It's been a real pleasure. Panther on Twitter is at ZK Panther and, uh, pantherprotocol.io is our website we have a vibrant community on telegram um, if you search panther protocol you'll find us there's about 80,000 members so that's the identifier for our community there and uh that's really it um i'm on twitter at original ollie o-l-i-i and yeah, hit us up. Join the join the community if you're interested. If you if you care about privacy, you care about freedom, and you think that there's something there worth standing up for, we'd love to have you in the community and 
whatever form or fashion because at the end of the day the whole premise of this transformation is that it's power to the people so it's up to us to to actually be the ones to build and foster the ecosystem awesome man we got to build on the back in, in this bear market so thank you so much oliver gale panther protocol thank you everyone for listening out there and john as always it was a pleasure i will chat with y'all cool. backstage Thanks, guys. thank you